Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving Podcast. And this is two things. It's episode 100 of the show. And it is also the Christmas special. It is Boxing Day, which is the British term for the 26th of December. I should say it's the holiday special to be more inclusive. That'd be better, wouldn't it? The holiday special of the Not a Diving Podcast is right here. How are you doing? I hope you've had a good break thus far. There's obviously more of it to go. I hope you had a good day yesterday. If you celebrate Christmas, I hope you ate sufficient turkey or whatever you saw fit to eat. I think the traditional thing is really goose, isn't it? I think it's supposed to be goose on Christmas Day. But whatever you had, I hope you ate a lot of it. And I hope you drank a lot of wine and stuff too, if that's the kind of thing you enjoy doing, really. Okay, so there's no guest you will have deduced. So we've got a couple of things on the show this week. We have an episode of Singles Club. That is the regular thing that we do over on the Patreon. And if you wanted to sign up to Patreon, it's patreon.com slash scuba official. But it's a regular bonus podcast that we do. And we've done two so far in a series of Christmas reviews, because that's what Singles Club is. It's like quick music reviews. So... In the week, last week, in fact, we did two of two Spotify playlists entitled Christmas Favourites and one entitled Christmas Party. Now, those episodes included reviews of tracks like Last Christmas by Wham, Sleigh Ride by The Ronettes, Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow by Frank Sinatra, Rocking Around the Christmas Tree by Brenda Lee, and uh, plenty of other stuff too. So we do 10 tracks per episode. The one we're going to do today, however, is a Spotify playlist entitled UK Christmas Number Ones. That is in no particular order, and we're going to play a game where you have to guess which year each of the tracks 
was number one in the UK. That's going to be fun. I think you'll agree. And additionally to that, so that's, by the way, part three in a three-part series, but you don't need to have listened to the first two to get what you need out of part three of that particular series, and it is right here on this episode, and you have to go anywhere else. It's just here. And as I was about to say, the other thing that we have on today's episode is an AMA on touring. Yeah, tour stories, or rather (laughs) answers to questions submitted by supporters of the podcast. So if you are a supporter, then you may well be hearing my response to it. If you're not a supporter, well, I mean, you're at least going to hear the answers to the questions, right? (laughs) And if you wanted to, again, get involved in a more direct way in future, then yeah, the Patreon is where to do it. So yeah, as mentioned, it's a pretty long list of questions. I've kind of arranged them into vague kind of order of general topics. I haven't really prepared answers, although when I was going through them, obviously I did read them and there are one or two which I've had to have a little think about. But generally speaking, I'm going to be shooting from the hip on these answers, which always makes it more fun, I think. And also gives you a bit of a get out of jail free if you say something stupid or miss something out, which I am prone to do very much prone to do as regular listeners will be only too well aware um okay what should we do first i think let's do singles club first because that's a bit of fun in fairness the touring stuff is going to be fun too but let's go for the uk christmas number ones playlist first and see where we get with it shall we yep okay let's do this okay welcome to singles club This is part three of a three-part Christmas special of this format of the Not A Diving podcast and featuring on the main feed, which is not normal for Singles Club at all. Singles Club is normally solely the provision of the Patreon feed, but given that it's Christmas, we're widening this particular episode out. So the first two parts of this were... Christmas Favourites and Christmas Party. Those are two playlists on Spotify. Spotify have been really nice to all the subscribers and compiled a a bewildering array of Christmas-themed playlists for the holiday period. So well done to Spotify. That makes makes up for everything else, I think you'll join me in saying. But on this part three, we're going to be going through... Well, it is a Spotify playlist, but... It is not editorially curated. It is a list of UK Christmas number ones. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to listen to 10 of them. You're going to try and guess which year each of them were number one. And I'm going to do my usual thing on Singles Club, which is to give you a short and pithy, lighthearted review of the track in approximately two minutes or thereabouts, sometimes longer. Rarely shorter than two minutes, but yeah, that sort of that sort of time period. So this is not in any sort of order. I don't know how they settled on the order. It was probably an algorithm, wasn't it? It was probably AI, which is superseding so many of the editorial staff over at those DSPs, I have heard anecdotally. So there is one track in this top 10, which we covered on one of the previous episodes of this series, and it's Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid, the 1984 one. So honestly, I think we'll skip that because skipping that will enable us to 
start at number 11. And the track at number 11 is one which is pretty surprising, I think, that it's in this chart. And I have no idea off the top of my head which year it was. Just a quick reminder that's what I told you what the, the format was just a minute ago. This is Singles Club is a continuation of actually a format that Fact Magazine came up with and I appeared on many years ago. And it was an appearance that's divided opinion, I think it's fair to say. I said some less than charitable things, less than Christmassy things about certain musicians, some of whom have gone on to justify my opinion of them, notably uh, a guy with the, well, his first initial is K, that guy. I was prescient in my assessment of that guy. But at the time, it went down badly, very badly. But, you know, what can you do? And it's basically it's um, something that I just quite enjoy doing, really. And I'm not going to go out of my way to be mean to anyone here. I'm just going to, you know, shoot from the hip. I actually haven't heard very many of these tunes in the top 10. Looking up and down it now, there's a couple that I know, maximum four, I think, not including the Band-Aid one. Certainly that I couldn't sing them to you. So this this is good. This will be interesting because a uh, shoot from the hip review is what Singles Club is all about. So let's get into it, shall we? Now, I should just say quickly at the outset, you can play this as a drinking game. We did a semi-drinking game on a previous episode of Singles Club involving country music. It wasn't really a drinking game, but it kind of resolved itself into something which definitely could have been. So if you are drinking something and it's Boxing Day, so you might well be, then you might consider downing your glass when you hear reference to sleigh bells, perhaps. Or maybe if you hear sleigh bells in the arrangement, that means you have to down your glass. I think that would just be a good good little rule. I think you might be drinking quite a lot if you follow it. But, but yeah, anyway, let's start, shall we? So, UK Christmas number one. So it's, it's important to emphasize UK Christmas number ones. So what you want to do here is get your bingo card out and write down which which year you think each track made it to number one in the charts over Christmas. Number 11 on the UK Christmas number ones playlist is always on my mind by the Pet Shop Boys. Okay, bingo cards at the ready. That was 1987. So if you got that, well done. Well done. That's a Panorama Bar classic. The first time I heard that in Panorama Bar, it was Nick Hopner playing it, I believe. Um, yeah, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. It's kind of an obvious choice. I think it's one of those ones that, once it's been done a few times in there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, the Elvis version of this is obviously the classic version or the, the original classic, the OG version anyway. And actually, this this I think it's a really great song. I think it's one of the better songs of the 20th century. I mean, that's uh, that's big talk, but I mean, I generally think it is. Elvis one came out in 72. Wow, that's, that's quite a late period, Elvis. Um, but yeah, that version, the Elvis version is just, yeah. It's, it's genuinely moving, I think. And the Petrol Voice version, like, that's the problem with, you know, when you put someone like this into a into a dance track, I think you inevitably miss, you inevitably lose quite a lot of the emotional pathé of it. And, um, you know, this is really 
top period, peak period, Pet Shop Boys came out in 87. And I didn't realise, I'm just reading the wiki, um, this was to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Elvis Presley's death. I didn't know that. So they, they were on a TV show and they were asked to perform one of their favourite Elvis tracks and this was the one they picked. Right. But this is actually era Pet Shop Boys, which is the best Pet Shop Boys album for sure. Um, I mean, as an album anyway, obviously uh, lots of the hits came earlier, the big hits, but I think as an album actually is the best one. And this is really them at the peak of their powers. And I suppose, in fairness to them, taking on this as a as a cover version, it could be a lot worse than it is. A lot, lot worse. Because it's good. It is good. It definitely is good. But there were no sleigh bells, so you didn't need to drink or to down your glass anyway. Um, I'm I'm drinking, actually, a glass of red wine, in case you're wondering. It being... It's actually Christmas Eve as I'm recording this. And I'm, I'm drinking a glass of the... Lopez de Heredia Vigna Bosconia from 2012 Rioja and um, it's very nice I have to say I will not be no I'm not going to observe a sleigh bells rule because I'm, I'm just a bit worried I think there might be quite a lot of sleigh bells in this particularly in this next track actually number 10 moving on it's Slade with Merry Christmas Everybody Okay, this is 1973, if you're playing the game. So I always confuse that with Wizards and their <laughs> Christmas song of the same year, which was entitled, I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day. They're almost interchangeable, actually. Almost identical. <laughs> they are glam rock, early 70s, absolutely by the numbers. And both have great choruses, actually, to be fair. I wonder if there was any... I don't think there was any doubling up with the production team or the songwriters or whatever. No, they were definitely not because this was written by Noddy Holder and Jim Lee. And um, the early 70s are not my strong point of, of knowledge. And I did not know this, but I'm reading a little bit of info. By the way, if you're not up to date with uh, Singles Club Rules, I have the duration of the track only to research if I don't know what I'm going to be talking about. So that was three minutes or so of research which yielded the following. Slade were one of the most popular bands in Britain in 1973, having achieved two number one singles, Come On Feel The Noise and Squeeze Me Please Me, in three months. These singles had both entered the charts straight in at number one, which hadn't been done since the Beatles with Get Back in 1969, and they did it twice. Wow, so they were huge. So in actual fact, it's not surprising that, well, I mean, it was them and Wizards, basically, at number one and number two. And considering that they were huge, it's not really that surprising that they, they made it. They won. I mean, <laughs> listening to this track in headphones all the way through, it's a weirdly mixed track. Like, there's a rhythm guitar part that comes in in the second verse, which is far too loud and just sits on top of everything else. It's like, <laughs> it just really doesn't sound good at all. And, you know, it's obviously it's a great song. Of course it is. It's got, a, you know, a huge chorus. And there's some lovely uh, harmony work as well. So the chord work in the sort of resolving, you know, the resolving sequence to each, to each section of the song 
uh, is just lovely and, you know, could only be in that kind of five-year period of like maybe 1968 to 1973, right? That was just, yeah, it just sounds like that era completely. But, you know, glam rock, eh? All we're missing is Gary Glitter, but, I mean, probably for the best, right? Probably for the best. Okay, number nine in the chart. We are zooming forward a number of decades. The track is called Perfect Duet, and it's by Ed Sheeran and Beyonce. I have no idea what this sounds like. That was absolutely fucking dreadful. <laughs> it really, really was. That was terrible. Absolutely terrible. The song actually, you know, unusually for this kind of thing, it's only got two songwriters credited. And quite a lot of those Ed Sheeran tunes have got like a, a million songwriters. But this sounds like it was it was written by a committee. And I think this was a it was a single previously just with Ed Sheeran called Perfect. And they made it perfect duet for Christmas, presumably, with that in mind. And it just sounds so cynical. It just sounds like such a fucking cash grab. By the way, this was December 2017. So if you're, yeah, if you got that, then then well done. I had no idea. I, I mean, pfft. to me, Ed Sheeran is like, I couldn't pick out his voice at all. He seems to be just extraordinarily average. Obviously, there's been loads of big hits and some of them are great songs in fairness. Some of his hits are great songs. But I think it just sums up the musical era that we're in that Ed Sheeran is so is so popular because it's just so nothing, you know? It really is just absolutely nothing. And, you know, Beyonce is, well, you can hear it because Beyonce is an amazing singer, technically. And when she comes in, in the second verse on this track, you're like, yeah, that's what a good singer sounds like. But, you know, it's a certain kind of vocal performance, which is, I don't know, it just sounds so... It sounds so commercial. It just, it does. There's no other way of saying it. I was like searching for a word there, but I mean, it really just is like, yeah, it's, it's bad. It's not, it's not good. It's, it's shopping malls on a record is what this is. And it's what Ed Sheeran is. And it's also what Beyonce is. And sorry, Beyonce fans. I know there's lots of Beyonce fans, but no, she's a product and she always has been. That's the truth. And yeah, it's it's bad. It's just bad music. Sorry, it is. It's it's just unbelievably cynical, commercial, bad music. And I've just noticed that number eight is also Ed Sheeran. It's Lad Baby, Ed Sheeran, and Elton John tracking titled Sausage Rolls for Everyone. Oh dear. Right. I mean, it's a bit harsh to slag off a charity record, isn't it? Mm. Basically, there's a bit at the end of that track where there's, there's a kind of like, <laughs> it's like them laughing. And like I say, obviously, we're just told to go into the booth and laugh. And it sounds so fake. And that's kind of what this this is. It's just, it's just fake. Now, Lad Baby, 
I've just discovered is a YouTuber, musician, and blogger. His content focuses on his experiences as a father and is usually filled in collaboration with his wife, Roxanne, who also features on this record. Now, amusingly, uh, Ed Sheeran and Elton John released a Christmas single a week before this. So they were in competition with each other. The other song was called Merry Christmas, and uh, I haven't had the pleasure of listening to it. It was on Elton John's Lockdown Sessions album. I didn't know that existed. I mean, look, they raised a lot of money for charity with this record, so you can't be that sniffy about it. And obviously a lot of the stuff that goes on this time of year is intended to raise money for charity. And yeah, you're fine. Good, good, good. I'm glad that people listen to the record and whatever. But I mean, really? I mean, again, with Ed Sheeran's voice, I don't know. I couldn't pick him out of a, a lineup. I really couldn't. Like as soon as Elton John comes in, like, yep, that's Elton John. Um, actually, by the way, I forgot to say this about the the, the previous track. <laughs> this is this is bad podcasting, but I'm, I meant to criticize Beyonce's performance a little bit more because when she sings the chorus on that previous track, her throat really cracks and it happens every time she does it. And when they're singing the harmonies in the last chorus, it sounds terrible. It sounds absolutely terrible. And they've got it panned, they've got both voices panned right on top of each other. And it just clangs. It's terrible. Really, I mean, that's not a criticism of her. That's how she just chose to sing it. And when, it, when you first hear it, when she first sings that line, it sounds kind of cool that her throat cracks a bit. But the rest of the times it sounds terrible. Anyway, that's, that's off topic. I mean, this, this, this tune, man, is, whatever. I think there's, there's at least one more charity record in this or, you know, song that was written to be a charity record anyway. And you can't be too unkind, but there's surely a better way of raising money for charity than releasing a bad song and keeping a good song potentially off the number one spot at Christmas, maybe. Number seven in this list is Lonely This Christmas by Mud. Okay, I've never heard of Mud, full disclosure, and I'm not the only one. I mean, it literally says on their bio on Spotify, mention the name Mud to most Americans even those neck deep in the 70s revival. And the likely, the likely result will be a blank stare. So I'm not the only person. But this is UK number ones, this list. So maybe I should do, although I was definitely not alive, very much not alive, in 1974 when this was the number one. So the one after, the year after Slade. And there are more than superficial similarities between the sound of those two records. I mean, this one is mixed much better, I should say. Yeah, they both have that kind of glam rock feel. Although, I mean, it says it says here what I'm reading. It was performed in the style of Elvis Presley's slower songs from his later career. And yeah, there's a bit of a uh, unsubtle Elvis impression going on with the vocal performance. I mean, it was all right. It was all right. I mean, apparently at this point... Mud were really big in the UK. So they were kind of just the kind of act 
du jour and you know released a cynical christmas song you know and as we've noticed in the last two episodes of this special which you may or may not have had access to as we've noticed there's quite a lot of cynical stuff that happens at christmas and if it's to raise money for charity then okay you can get a pass on that but if you're just trying to make money then you know fuck you frankly and it seems like this was what that was and it's just not very good not very good at all so sorry mud but that was pretty shit number six is do they know it's christmas by band-aid as mentioned we've already done this before by the way yeah i did mention that was 1974 for the mud one so i don't know if you're keeping score but like just just keep going right and then uh maybe we can have a a joint assessment somehow to find out what might be a, a good score or not but yeah Band-Aid, that was obviously 1984, but we're not doing that. And number five is Two Become One by the Spice Girls. Let's have a listen to this. <laughs> okay, that's a great song. I mean, there's no getting around it. I was um, transported immediately back to the mid 90s i was like doing my a levels when this came out i think was i or maybe my gcse's something like that well okay well it's it's december 1996 so i was in the middle of my a levels is what was going on for non-uk listeners for american listeners that means i was in high school and i don't know if you've seen the robbie williams documentary on Netflix that went up recently, but I was just immediately back in that environment, that kind of, yeah, Robbie going to Glastonbury, all that kind of shit. It's that, that kind of, that kind of era. And it is, it is a good song. It really is. I mean, <laughs> so there's a line on the wiki page about the songwriting. It goes, uh, <laughs> it goes, <laughs> The lyrics focus on how the bonding of two lovers can become so strong that they practically become one entity through the act of sexual intercourse. Wow. And uh, yeah, apparently Jerry Halliwell was shagging one of the producers and they basically wrote this song together. And that's how it came about. <laughs> that's pretty amazing too. I've got to read this as well. The other producer, Richard Stannard, or I think he's called Biff Stannard, this is a quote from him meeting the Spice Girls for the first time. More than anything, they just made me laugh. I couldn't believe I'd walked into this situation. You didn't care if they were in time with the dance steps or whether one was overweight or one wasn't as good as the others. It was something more. It just made you happy. <laughs> who was the overweight one and who wasn't as good as the others? I think Victoria Beckham, Victoria uh, Adams, Posh Spice. I'm pretty sure she was the one who wasn't as good as the others, if I had to guess. I think she was legendarily bad at singing. Who was overweight? Was it Sporty Spice who was overweight? Or maybe it was Jerry Halliwell initially. Yeah, it was Jerry Halliwell, wasn't it? I mean, the 90s UK music industry, <laughs> in a nutshell. But yeah, good song. Really good song, you know. And yeah, just going back to who was bad... They always put the best singers up front. I think the best two singers were Mel C, Sporty Spice, and Emma 
Bunton. I'm fairly sure. Maybe Scary Spice as well was a good singer, but um, I'm, I think certainly Mel C was, had the reputation as being the best singer. But I mean, they sound all right. They, they sound all right on this record. I mean, it's so much better than Ed Sheeran and, and Beyonce. I mean, just, just leagues ahead. So much better. Just not even close. And um, yeah, they were good. They were good. Right, number four is Hallelujah by Alexandra Burke. All right. Okay, so the, the album art or the, the pack shot for this tune says in large writing, the X Factor winner. So, <sighs> Simon Cowley, what an absolute cunt. This is from 2008. So if you had that chalked up, well done. It was a top-selling single, the best-selling single of 2008 in the UK. And, uh, yep, of course, the number one. But yeah, the X Factor and all those talent shows I have remarked before was just re- responsible for an enormous amount of rubbish music being released into the world. And, you know, a huge amount of resources, hundreds and thousands of hours of producers and engineers' time, musicians' time, making a load of absolute fucking rubbish. And this is an insult to a great song isn't it really? Let's be honest. And I'm not really, I feel like I'm being a bit harsh on Alexandra Burke. And it's not really a ding on her so much as a ding on the major label ecosystem, Simon Cowell in particular, and just the complete prostitution of music in the pursuit of money, really. And I know that's just, uh, that's just the music industry. And, you know, it's, it's, um, easy to get wound up about it but it's just is the nature of the game and I do understand that but I mean really the whole talent tv show thing ugh, one of the worst things ever to happen to music and it just turns out really boring identikit bollocks and I didn't know this but Alexandra Burke is the daughter of one of the singers from Soul to Soul and Soul to Soul were an amazing band they were a properly original sounding group who made great records. And Alexandra Burke could have been doing something like that if she'd tried, but she went on fucking X Factor instead because that's what people did then. Because that's what was the, that's what the zeitgeist was at the time. And I'm afraid it says a lot about the industry and that's got to be connected to the current malaise that we are in because music now is I think as bad as it's ever been frankly in the recorded music era anyway and that trend of TV shows has got to have a big even if it's peaked even if it's not quite around in the same way that it used to be that's got to have contributed significantly to the current bullshit that dominates music anyway um, that's a big moan that's a festive moan (laughs) about music so yeah 2008 don't know where you are on your attempts to guess the years but that was shit great song by Leonard Cohen butchered by Simon Cowell basically I'm not gonna yeah let's not let's not blame Alexander Burke it's not her fault okay we've got three more number three 
It's Shaken Stevens. Merry Christmas, everyone. Christmas Everyone was recorded in 1984, but its original plan release was put back a year to avoid clashing with the runaway success of Band Aid's charity single, Do They Know It's Christmas. So 1985 is the year. It is the year. There was another fairly famous Christmas song released in 1984, and that was Last Christmas by Wham, which only made it to number two because of Bob Geldof and his African dictator-supporting efforts. So, okay, this is a track which I just assumed was a classic which had been re-recorded, but no, this was original to Shaken Stevens, although he did not write it himself. And when you Google this, one of the first things that comes up, or one of the first questions that Google throws up to be answered is how much does Shaken Stevens make from Merry Christmas Everyone? And the answer is five grand a year because... The estimated 130 grand a year, which is generated by the track, the vast majority goes to the songwriter, Bob Heatley. So there's a lesson for you. What you want to do is a mass publishing catalogue. Forget about performance. Um, I didn't know that Shaken Stevens was the UK's biggest selling singles act of the 1980s. That is mental. I didn't know that at all. I mean, I couldn't name another Shaken Stevens track. I mean, I really couldn't. Like, so he only had four number one. No, hang on. Yeah, he only had four number one hits, but he just, I guess everything he released was just, just consistent seller. So this old house, Green Door, Oh Julie, and this. Yeah, I mean, this passed me by entirely. And I guess he's extraordinarily unfashionable (laughs) as an act. I mean, Paul Scholes left an unflattering or kind of piss-take comment on a Michael Owen Instagram post the other day suggesting that Michael Owen looked like Shaken Stevens. Those are footballers for those of you who are in the United States. And um, I think that kind of sums up the position of Shaken Stevens in, in modern society. I mean, the guy's 75 and was the UK's biggest selling act of singles in the 1980s, so I doubt he gives that much of a shit. It's probably worth mentioning that singles were not a big selling format, were they, in the 80s? That was very much the era of CDs. Everyone bought CDs. So, yeah, probably not as much of a big deal as it initially sounds. But, I mean, in terms of a track, you know, it's okay. It's a kind of 1950s throwback, which is kind of what Shaken Stevens was, hence the name. But, yeah... It's, I mean, it is a good song, let's be honest. It's a great song. It sounds like a standard, which I guess that means it's great. It has to be great. I mean, that's what they were... When you're, when you're writing a Christmas song, you're trying to write a standard, which is a very, it's a very, very high bar to reach. And it's not surprising that those previous efforts that we heard by Ed Sheeran and Elton John, for example, that one was, was terrible. Because that, I mean, that was a Christmas song. The one with Beyonce wasn't actually a Christmas song. It just happened to be released at Christmas. But yeah, it's hard writing Christmas songs. It really is. So fair enough for writing a a good one. And that's mad, actually. So three genuine classics, Christmas classics, were composed and potentially released, but not actually released, but potentially released in 1984. That is amazing. And that kind of backs up my theory that 1984 was the peak 
of popular culture, peak year of popular culture. You know, when I originally thought of that, I wasn't thinking of Christmas songs at all. But yeah, I mean, it, it matches up. It matches up. Right, two more. We have two more. You may be um, relieved to note. I remember this one. It's E17 and Stay Another Day. E17 in 1994. I remember this track. I remember it well. I really do. I thought it was kids' music, even though I definitely was a kid when it came out. And, you know, E17 were the kind of yin to take that yang in the kind of UK boy band wars. They were the kind of bad boy version, quote unquote, which obviously didn't fully reveal itself until until later in the 90s. Um, just actually before we talk about this, I've just remembered something that I wanted to say about the Alexandra Burke track. I realised I was really quite hard on that. But this reminded me of it because it's a classic boy band trope. It's the key change. And it's not even a modulation usually because usually what they do is they just raise everything by a tone and... The most cliched example of which is manifested during performances of boy band tracks where they're all sat on bar stools. You can picture the scene. And when the key change happens, they all get up off the bar stools. Yeah, not a dry pair of knickers in the house. And that's such a lazy trope. It's such a lazy songwriting trope. And for them to use that in Alexandra Burke's version of Hallelujah is... It's unforgivable. I mean, that track is already unforgivable, but the key change in it is just... Oh, it's a new low. It was a new low in that track. I can't believe I forgot to mention it, but, I mean, it was just fucking awful and insulting. Just an insult to a great song. I already said that, but fuck. Anyway, E17 were not great as a band. They had Tony Mortimer, who was the kind of resident songwriter, like Gary Barlow. He was like a sort of like Cockney Gary Barlow. And, you know, they had a, I don't know, did they have any good tunes? This this was a good song, I have to say. I mean, it was a good song, let's, let's be honest. And emotionally charged as well because it's about the death of his, his brother, suicide of his brother, Tony Mortimer's brother. So, quote, it was based on my brother's suicide and losing someone. What would you do if you had one more day with a loved one? It was all based on conversations I'd had with my brother and I was trying to change it into a love song about the end of a relationship. So yeah, okay. That's not a typical boy band song, is it? So fair play, Tony Mortimer, fair play. But, you know, the... I mean, so just judging that on its merits without wanting to just slay A17 for no reason. Yeah, it's good. It's good. And it's... it's um Well, it's also very reminiscent of, of that Spice Girls record, right? It, it's located exactly there. Spice Girls a couple of years later, but I mean, it's mid-90s British pop. Could only be that. I mean, there's no way this did anything in America. Just not a chance. And I guess really what these bands were, they were the kind of British version of NSYNC and that kind of thing. Backstreet Boys. I'm not sure if E17 could really stand up to that kind of competition. Take that definitely could. Take that with like best in class boy band material. But Stay Another Day, 
E17. Mm, maybe maybe the song was good enough, but as a band they weren't. And yeah, so <laughs> I mean, the bad boyness of E17, famously manifested by Brian Harvey, Brian Harvey's admission on air, live on air, that he took loads of pills. I remember being quite impressed by that. Not impressed necessarily by the drug taking, but you know, being impressed by the fact that he felt able to say so in an interview in 1997. But obviously that was actually the end of the band. So it was not smart of him. It was very, very stupid of him. In fact, <laughs> really stupid. And the fact that uh, me, aged 18, taking a lot of pills at the time, it's like, yeah, fair enough, Brian Harvey. But, you know, I wasn't an E17 fan and that didn't make me into an E17 fan. And it was the end of the band because they split up basically that year. Um, that was the end of all their careers. I mean, they must have been pretty much over by then anyway because it was a short career, I think, in, in a boy band. Yes. It was okay, though. It was all right. There's definitely been worse stuff in this chart. And I guess a great time to release it at Christmas because it's a big kind of plucking of the heartstrings, kind of a moment of a track. So, yeah, this was the, this was the highlight of E17's career. I guess. And yeah, pretty good highlight. Okay, we're at the end. We've got one more. Unfortunately, it's another one by Lad Baby. It's called Food Aid. Let's have a listen. Pray for a sausage roll This Christmas time Charity's really coming home Okay, that was 2022. So well done. If you got all those right, award yourself an extra drink. There were no sleigh bells in that either, actually, as far as I could tell. So only one set of sleigh bells in the whole chart. So I guess the same caveats apply as the first Lad Baby track, because you don't want to be too hard on a charity record. But my God, this was bad. It genuinely was. Like, it was such a bad such a badly recorded tune. I mean, the use of auto-tune, not as an effect, but just to mask what was presumably a excrubable <laughs> vocal performance. I think it was by his wife. Is, that, is it Roxanne? Is her name Roxanne? Yeah. It really sounded bad. They should have just left it out of tune. I think it would have sounded better. And they've changed the lyrics. Obviously, so it's still in Earth's Christmas, but changed a bit. But they didn't get a load of celebs to sing on it. They sung it themselves. But I think Martin Lewis, the uh, consumer champion Martin Lewis, features in a spoken word segment. <laughs> but they changed the lyrics. And the, the thing that clangs the hardest is the, you know, the famous Bono line. Tonight, thank God it's them instead of you, which is actually a really smart bit of writing. It's, you know, it was a controversial line at the time, but it's actually, it's it's quite, I think, penetrating, you know, in terms of, um, yeah, people's attitudes to people who live in foreign countries. I think it really, that really is a smart line. And it's not a line that you'd ever get in a charity single now. Like anything that requires explanation would never be included in this kind of record and they change it to um tonight we're reaching out and helping you and that just sounds so patronizing it really does it really fucking does it's so condescending 
even if it's being done in a good cause, which no doubt it is, and it's all about you know food banks and you know poverty in Britain, which of course there is, and you know it is a good cause, and you can't criticise that. But it's done in the most clumsy way. It really is. It just sounds awful, and you know, again, can't criticise too much because good is being done here, but not good to music. You're not doing music any favours here by releasing this kind of bullshit. I don't know. That's a bit depressing, isn't it? It really is. It really is depressing. But, yeah. Oh, well. As a list, this was bad. This was easily the worst list of the three that I've done for this. So, yeah, Pet Shop Boys, great. Slade's pretty good. Ed Sheeran and Beyonce, terrible. Lad Baby, Ed Sheeran and Elton John, terrible. Mud was pretty uninspiring. Spice Girls, pretty great. Alexandra Burke, just honestly. Shaggin Stevens, no. E17, mm, not great. But no, not, not too bad. And this, which was... Just a disaster. It's very easy to hate on the original of this, and, and most easy, I think, because of what we know about how the actual fundraising efforts, what what that actually meant, what that actually led to, how much of the money actually did anything positive. So it's very easy to be cynical about the whole thing now. But but as a song, Do You It's Christmas is a, is a great song. For sure it is. And the original version, it's pretty good, kind of. <laughs> it's definitely better than the updated version and a million times better than this version <laughs> so okay we're done this has been UK Christmas number one so well done if you got them all right you won't have drunk that much if you're waiting for sleigh bells but maybe you were just sipping along anyway so yeah this has been Singles Club let's uh, rejoin the main show shall we Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. That was Singles Club, episode 20, actually, of Singles Club. And uh, you can listen to any of the previous 19 episodes by joining our Patreon on either of the two tiers. The cheaper one is a mere four US dollars a month or three of your UK pounds and 50 pence. So, yeah, if you like the podcast, then that'd be a nice thing to do anyway. But yeah, you could spend the whole rest of the day listening to Singles Club episodes, all 19 of them. Again, that being number 20. Right, okay. Part two of the pod, it's the touring AMA. As I mentioned at the top, supporters of the podcasts were given the opportunity to submit questions for this. 
And I have a list here of questions which I'm going to attempt to answer over the course of the next, ooh, I don't know, half an hour, 40 minutes or so. Let's see where we get to with it. So actually, the reason for doing this in the first place was I asked our supporters for suggestions of what kind of bonus podcasts they wanted, basically, what kind of formats. As mentioned, we do the Singles Club one, but wanted to change it up a bit. And a popular response to that was a podcast covering tour stories or a series of them. And I was puzzling over how best to format such an episode. And I figured actually an AMA might be the best way of doing it. So that's why we found our way here, basically. And I figured actually it's going to be quite a nice thing to do on the regular feed. Although having said that, there will be an extended version of this available for supporters. So if you are on the Patreon, then this episode is longer and it contains an extra section of the AMA featuring some quite juicy questions, which I didn't really want going out on the regular feed. So yeah, that's another incentive to get signed up to the Patreon and support, you know, the best music podcast out there, right? That's what we all know it is. It's the conclusion that we've all drawn, isn't it? Possibly. (laughs) Anyway, here's my list of questions. I'm just going to go through them. I'll read out who asked the question. There's quite a few doubles because we have quite a few assiduous members of our Discord. Actually, I didn't mention the Discord. Yeah, so these came through the Discord. And uh, you can join the Discord even if you're not a Patreon member, by the way. Hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. But there's a private area for supporters and that's where these questions were submitted. (laughs) Right, I think that's all the information now. So yeah, we have a few assiduous members in there who submitted multiple and pretty well thought out questions. So they're going to constitute the bulk of what I'm answering here. So yeah, kicking off, Stewart asks, looking back, what were your best and worst touring decisions? So I've had to give this one a little bit of thought because it's a kind of a difficult one, actually. Okay, so let's start with the worst one first. I think the most damaging decision that I took, and it wasn't really a decision, it was something that was kind of like evolved over time. But the decision to tour on my own, I think, was not great over time. I think that manifested itself in a way which is pretty difficult. So it's common to have a tour manager or have a, you know, someone that you just take along to shows as a matter of course. I don't know what they, I mean, a tour manager is the kind of technical term for it, but actually a DJ tour manager is kind of code for, you know, accompanying mate a lot of the time, maybe accompanying mate who knows a little bit about the tech side and can, you know, oversee a DJ setup. But generally speaking, the skill set which is required by a band's touring manager is very much not necessary for a DJ. I mean, a band's touring manager is, is, you know, responsible for all of the travel, all of the budgeting, making sure the economics of the tour are on point. That's a really big job. It's a really important job as well, actually. And I think the um, I think that uh, the average DJ tour manager does not fulfill very many of those functions. But actually, that's not to do them down. Because as I mentioned, I think they can be really useful and really um, positive. And I think just the um, just the norm being established of spending that much time traveling on your own isn't that healthy. I think that's kind of my conclusion for 15 years or so since I really started doing it a lot. 
Like, I think I found it easier to do it like that. I think in the sort of immediate term, like on the kind of day to day, you know, it's, you get into a sort of rhythm and you get into a, a, a routine, I suppose, in your head and you kind of think it's going okay, but you know, you put your head up over the parapet a few years later and you've just spent a lot of your life in your own company. And I'm the kind of person who I'm kind of okay with that. Generally speaking, I don't, it doesn't really bother me spending time on my own, but I think in hindsight, it would have been better had I been able to have a relationship with, I mean, it doesn't have to be the same person, but just got into the, into the, the habit of taking someone along uh, regularly and kind of, I guess, having those experiences in a shared way rather than on my own. So that's a pretty intense way <laughs> to start this, I suppose. But honestly, that's the, that's the thing that comes to mind really, as a bad decision. I mean, yeah, there are lots of other bad decisions. You know, there were many times where I drank too much or, you know, oh, there was definitely a bad decision involving drinking a lot and, you know, uh, <laughs> saying the wrong thing on Twitter. My God, that happened more than once. Notably, the incident with Calvin Harris, which you can Google and you can very easily find. Um, but you had to do that. But I think long term, I think that was a, it was just bad doing it all on my own. You know, and I think ultimately, maybe, maybe I would have got more out of it in the company of other people, perhaps. I mean, obviously, I said in the company of other people, obviously, you are with other people when you tour because that's the nature of the business, right? You're constantly meeting new people, meeting promoters, meeting other DJs, and all the rest of it. But as a kind of touring one man band, that's the thing which is a kind of singular or a kind of single experience when you haven't got anyone with you. Okay. Best decision. Oh, I've just thought of another one as well. The worst decision, in fact, and this is actually the worst one. The worst decision I ever took was to take 2019 off DJing. That was the worst decision I ever took <laughs> because obviously it wasn't just one year because I couldn't DJ in 2020 or 2021 either. So it was a three-year break instead of a one-year break. So yeah, that's that, that, was, that, was, that was actually the, the worst decision. Okay, the best decision. I think the best decision was to stop drinking at shows, which I have to say is something which I haven't carried on recently, but I reached a point where it was a big problem and stopping was, well, put it this way, I had to stop touring, I had to stop working or I had to stop drinking and I was able to stop drinking but keep working and still work in a way which was, I'm not going to say it was exactly the same. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to pretend that it wasn't a little bit of an issue in terms of actual performance, in terms of how good I was, in terms of like absolutely giving as not giving as much, but just like, you know, getting to the getting to the same places as you can when you're a little bit loose on the decks. I'm not gonna pretend that it wasn't a bit of an issue in that respect. But I was able to, I think, keep up a level of performance which was which was which was decent without destroying myself along the way. And I absolutely did destroy myself along the way. You know, I, I, I complained once in an interview. It wasn't even complaining. It was, I made an observation in an interview many years ago that I had a drink problem. I, I actually used the term alcoholic, which was, which was a loose piece of language which I shouldn't have used, but I, I could, a, a better way of saying it would have been, I had a drink problem. And, um, I got absolutely castigated for it online. And it was the, one of the worst experiences of my life, actually, just like reading that stuff, uh, having made a bit of a loose comment, but a comment which was at its, at its heart really accurate, getting really just so much shit and thinking, fuck, 
you know, you really can't be open about this. And I think the industry has changed since then. I mean, that's, that's going back 10 years or so. I think the industry has changed and people are much more forgiving these days about that sort of stuff. But taking the decision to stop and actually doing it was a good decision. And I've kind of made my peace with all that stuff now, I think, generally speaking. I can kind of have a much better sense of perspective with everything to do with that stuff. And yeah, that was a, an essential decision on the way to reaching that stage. Okay, Matty Boy on the Discord. What was a challenge no one told you about that you didn't know or expect when starting? So, okay, off the top of my head, I would say the biggest challenge, and this is a long-term challenge, so it's not something you ever really think about when you start, because when you, when you first start DJing properly, you're just unbelievably excited to be doing it and just can't believe that it's happened. And, you know, your life as a professional DJ is just something which is just, you know, <laughs> it's just happening and you just, in, you know, you just experience it and you're not thinking long-term at all. I think that's completely normal and I think most people are like that. But I think the biggest challenge really is staying relevant and kind of riding the waves of the changing musical tastes and changing musical trends because particularly as a DJ I mean this is also true as a as a perform you know as a as a recording artist as a recording act but I think particularly as a DJ because you are so um out there as a as a sort of well I mean you know the original purpose of a DJ was just to you know just to make people dance and and that means you need to be playing stuff which is on point you know and obviously the role of a DJ has changed over time and, and it's much more of a, a an extension of, of, um, of a, an act, a recording act now. But even so, I think the, the challenge of keeping up with what is going on is enormous. And most of the time, this is a kind of incremental thing. So the, the change happens slowly and um, you just kind of listen and you're... You listen to your the tunes that come out each week and, and it sort of gradually shifts. Your approach gradually shifts. But then occasionally, and this happens every few years or so, or even longer sometimes, occasionally there's a really hard reset where things seemingly change almost overnight. And I have to say the pandemic was, was one of those points. And talking to other DJs these days, talking to other DJs since then, maybe in the last 18 months or so, it's just obvious to everyone that there was a massive, massive changing of the guards in that kind of 2020, 21 period. And so many people came out of the other side. So many people who had been previously very busy and very you know, having great careers. Lots and lots of people who were in that position, lots of even well-known people, really well-known people in, in some respects, in some cases. But most, uh, I think most personally, people who are chugging along doing a few gigs a month for not much money, but just enjoying themselves. So many people in that position had the, the rug just pulled out from under them and the whole thing had changed. And the music had changed and the crowd expectations had changed. What was expected of you in terms of digital promotion, you know, TikTok and socials and that kind of stuff. All of that stuff, it just changed very, very quickly. And that's a big challenge. You know, if you if you consider your career to be running a business, that's an enormous set of challenges to overcome. And lots of people just haven't overcome it. I think everyone has found it very difficult, you know, and that's an extreme example for sure. But over time, and even in those incremental periods, 
it is very difficult. And the longer you're in it, the harder it is, I would say. And yeah, because it's a young person's thing at the end of the day. The, the audience turns over and is always quite young. So the older you get by um, definition, the more of a distance between you and the people you're trying to make move. So yeah, it, it is really hard. I would say that is the biggest challenge and no one tells you about it. Absolutely not. And you don't expect it because like I said at the start, you are just excited to be in the game, you know? Okay, Janet Pack on the Discord. I don't need to say on the Discord, do I? Because they're all from the Discord. Janet says or asks, how do you stay quote-unquote healthy, aka do you find being on tour you're more prone to eating more versus what you do on a regular schedule? Um, no, I don't eat more. When I was touring a lot, I actually lost weight and I realized that's not necessarily quote-unquote healthy, which was in the first line of the question. And there were, very, <laughs> there were certainly things that I was doing which were not at all healthy. But if you're just talking about eating, then no, because I have subsequently learned through the use of a fitness tracker that DJing is pretty good exercise. You burn a shitload of calories when you're DJing. And if you DJ for, or if you're playing three gigs, let's say eight hours, that's um, not out of the question at all for three gigs, you'll easily burn a day's worth of calories for your kind of regular eating schedule over the course of those sets. And um, you've got to do a shitload of walking as well if you're traveling. So yeah, it's just a pretty physical lifestyle actually. And I dropped weight for sure in the first few years that I was touring and, you know, didn't really put it back on again until the pandemic. <laughs> That's another big challenge of the pandemic, right? I still haven't lost all my pandemic weight. Yuck, what a nightmare. Okay, uh, Stuart again. Did your habits on tour change over time? Well, I've already kind of covered that a little bit because yes, I had to give up drinking at some stage. Uh, I should emphasize that when I gave up drinking, I didn't actually totally give up drugs. Like for me, booze was the most destructive thing by a significant margin. Like through a process of elimination, I figured that out. Like that was the thing that did the most damage to my physical health, but most importantly, my mental health. Like that's what really got me depressed. Uh, and eliminating booze was just a complete game changer. And it meant that, you know, like on occasion... I could, you know, do some MDMA, do some, you know, <laughs> um, let's, okay, let's not get into the details of drugs, but like, you know, do drugs in a way which is not excessive and not, um, well, I think alcohol is usually a gateway to doing drugs in a stupid way. And uh, if you're not drunk when you start taking drugs, then you know, you'll probably be doing it in a more responsible way generally. I mean, I should caveat this by saying, you know, this isn't a recommendation to do any particular drug. You know, you just have to come to your own decision on that stuff. And, you know, I, I came to the decision at quite an early age that drugs were okay in certain respects anyway, in certain dosages. And I think I figured out my kind of overall tolerance level. I figured out like what was too much and what was enough at in my teenage years kind of thing. So I changed over time in that respect. But actually, it was really the drink that is what changed. So yeah, that was the main thing, really. And um, it kind of, it was in a kind of U-curve, I suppose. 
it was not very much, then a ton, and then back down to zero again. Okay, as the mixed herbs asks, how often did you do you get on it when playing, and how well did that work out? Okay, well that's a similar question. Um, when playing, though, that's an important distinction because when I was talking about drugs before, I wasn't necessarily uh, talking about during my set. And taking drugs when you're DJing is it's a gamble. <laughs> Put it that way, it's a gamble. I mean, I've on many, well, not many occasions, uh, there's been a few occasions where I've taken an E mid set. And it's not usually, well, it's, it's never been a disaster, but there's been some, <laughs> some problematic half hour periods. Put it that way. I've done that. I did that. I've done that in Bergheim and also in Panorama at least once. And I think there was a, there was one in Bergheim where I had a pretty rough come up and it was tough. It was very tough keeping the, keeping the show on the road. Oh God, I'm having a dodgy come up now. just thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not advisable, I, I would argue. Um, but it's also one of those things that when, what well, exits that kind of drug that once you're through the come up, you just do repetitive things. So actually mixing records is actually quite easy once you're in the groove of it and you just kind of like, you're in the kind of locked in and, you know, just, just queuing things up and, and dropping them in. If you're, you know, if you're good at DJ, if you're good at mixing, then it's something which you can kind of just resolve into when you're on a pill. But it's that come up bit, which is, which is hard. Um, apart from that, as I mentioned, never, hardly ever take coke and, and never when DJing. A, a line of coke whilst on the decks is, is just the worst thing ever because you just start overthinking everything and you think people are looking at you, which obviously they are because you're DJing. <laughs> yeah, just not good. A line of K is such a weird one because it feels like, it feels like there's a barrier goes up between you and the crowd, that's happened to me before. Did a little bump of K and then suddenly it's like you're in the next room. So you, any kind of connection you have with the dance floor is just gone immediately. So that's that's definitely avoid that. But I mean, in terms of how often, you know, not, not often at all. I'm generally speaking, well, actually my routine was to be pretty sober when starting. Um, that's the kind of routine I established for myself. And... I found that as long as I was relatively sober, like one drink maximum sober, when I started my sets and the first half an hour or so, then actually I could I could get on it after that during the course of a long set or whatever and still be okay because my mind was kind of locked into the kind of mechanics of, of, of mixing records already. So yeah, but that's... Um, drugs are, <laughs> are an addition that you should... <laughs> just 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 be careful with basically okay um as the mix herbs again what percentage of time on the road is spent on your own and what do you do so going back to my very first response yeah for me a lot of time was spent on my own a ton of time and um i read a lot i read many many copies of The Economist. <laughs> that was my <laughs> periodical of choice. You know, usually had a book on the go. Played a lot of championship manager, football manager, for sure. Played a lot of civilization. <laughs> I mean, you know, what else do you do on flights in airports? 
in hotel rooms. You just have to, I guess, identify pastimes which are which take you out of the situation sufficiently to be, I guess, restful. Because that's the, that's the, that's the problem. You don't want to get homesick and you don't want to start going around. So what, what happens is you establish a, a routine of things which make you feel like you're at home. You know, so after a few years, um, or maybe less than that, you know, after a few, after a period, you know, sitting in a hotel room playing Civilization or reading a copy of The Economist just began to feel completely normal and began to feel almost homely, right? You just establish your your patterns, which then become comforting, right? So that is, I guess, what what happens and how I sort of dealt with it. And and you know, it's it's it was fine. It was absolutely fine, really, for the for the most part anyway, and certainly for the first few years of it. But yeah, a lot of time basically in answer to the question. Empathy Lacuna asks how much does DJing for a living after 20 plus years dampen the desire or joy you get from being on a dance floor? So I don't think it dampens it that much, actually. You do find yourself on dance floors less, generally speaking, just because, uh, well, I think that's true for most DJs anyway, the vast majority of DJs. But, you know, the, the times that I've had, they're great in a different way, right? Because you know, yeah, the curtain has been fully drawn back in terms of the way the whole thing works. Like, you know exactly what's happening in any club. You know, you know, you know to look out for the various important people. Um, and you know exactly what the DJ is doing up there. You know exactly what they're feeling at most moments, you know. So, so there's no mystery. And part of the joy of clubs, certainly when you're young and certainly when you're inexperienced, is the mystery. So there's none of that. But you can still completely get lost in music and you know get lost in the kind of joy of a dj set absolutely and you know when you have a lot of knowledge technical knowledge and experiential knowledge and you see someone doing it really well then you know i'm not going to say you appreciate it more but you appreciate it in a different way and you know when i see a dj set which is impressive i'm impressed you know, in a way that was not true. In a way that's not true when you're just, in, you know, watching a DJ and they smash it, like, yeah, yeah, that guy's sick. It's different to that, you know? It's like, it's a more, it's, I guess it's a deeper appreciation. Um, which sounds like I'm, I'm saying it's more, but it's, it's not, it's just different, you know? So it's just different. Islander DJ asks, I remember in one episode of the podcast, you were talking with someone about how it's really hard for a touring DJ to maintain a good studio output would love to hear your personal experience of that. E.g., did you do a lot of writing in hotel rooms? No, I didn't do writing in hotel rooms. I've only ever been able to write in my regular workspace. So I did zero work, music work, on the road. Nothing at all. Just wasn't able to do it. You know, just wasn't able to get into the into the mindset of doing it. So I just had to be... Well, I... I when I was touring like, you know, 80 shows a year, 100 shows a year, I saw studio work as a nine to five. So I, on Monday to Friday, I worked nine to five in the studio, basically. And I just saw it as a discipline that had to be kept up. And I think by and large, that meant that at least I kept my hand in. Now, whether that translated to you know, good work 
is a different question entirely. And when I look back over my output, uh, I mean, it's it's variable. <laughs> it's wildly variable. But I'm not sure that those, I'm not sure that the, the periods of good output, quote unquote, good output and bad output correlate too much to how much I was touring. I'm not completely sure in my case that that was hugely significant, you know, whilst acknowledging that there has been a pretty wide variance. I don't know. I mean, I think that it's it's difficult to recreate the conditions that you had before. It's almost impossible to recreate the conditions that you had before, which yielded your initial good work. A lot of that is psychological. Most of it is psychological, of course. But also, actually, I think, uh, you know, if you're, if you're playing out a lot, you're making money and oftentimes... DJ producers spend that money on on kit and they change the way they work and they you know they move away from the uh the setup that they used which was so productive for them and things just change generally you know and I think for most producers for most people the seam is quite shallow I mean that sounds a bit of an arrogant thing to say and you know as I've just acknowledged my own seam has been extremely variable Maybe not extremely variable, <laughs> quite variable. But I mean, I think for most people, there just isn't that much in there to be mined. But having said that, I would definitely say that, you know, it's, it's an aggravating factor. You know, all of what I just said above, you know, being away, changes to your working structure, you know, just fatigue of being on the road, you know, it, it all plays into it. But also the pressure of trying to stay relevant. You know, as I mentioned, that's the biggest challenge that you face in your career and it's so easy to fall into the trap of overthinking that and making stuff which you think is going to keep you at the top or keep you in your position or whatever. It's so easy to, to be in that headspace and it's not a good headspace to be in at all. Okay, Jan Warner. Travel tips when you have to play two gigs in a row, please, in different locations. I mean, <laughs> just... Do everything you can to avoid a connecting flight and always, always do hand luggage only. Never check in a bag if you can possibly help it. That's the most important one, actually. Just I think I did uh, the entirety of the last 10 years of touring of international gigs, hand luggage only. <laughs> Honestly, because it's it's just beyond a nightmare otherwise. Okay, another one from Jan. And actually, this is also a question that Janet asked Worst technical mishaps. What are the worst things that have happened to you technically in a show? I'm having to think about this one. I think in the days before standard CDJs, those were dark days. <laughs> they really were. In the days before the original CDJ 1000 became standard in all clubs and you had all sorts of dodgy CDJ solutions uh, including the ones with the drawers, like you know, the, the drawers that come out, you, you press open and a drawer comes out and you have to put the CD in. And put. Those were in clubs and um, I remember trying to play on them. And the the important thing about those dodgy um, non-pioneer CDJ solutions was that quite a lot of the time they wouldn't read your CDs. And that is the worst feeling ever. I mean, forget about, you know, reading a USB stick. Okay, that's bad, right? But I mean, you know, that's kind of existential thing. And if they, you know, if your USB stick doesn't read, then you're not playing, right? But if if you've got a CDJ, which, or CD rather, a CDR, 
which doesn't play, then you've got to, you know, try and find one which does. <laughs> you know, getting over the disappointment of not being able to play the tune that you wanted to play. And, it's, and it might have been a tune that you made that you want to hear how it sounds. You've got to scrabble around trying to figure out what tune you can play instead that goes with the one that's playing at the moment. Hope that one is read by the CDJ. And oh my God, that is just a nightmare. I mean, that used to happen regularly as well. It really happened regularly. Not cool. Really not cool. And yeah, I mean, obviously had stuff like power cuts of festivals. I remember a notable power cut happening. I forget what festival it was. But I mean, sometimes those can work to your advantage because it can bring the crowd together. If the if the power's not off for too long, it can really be useful. I remember having a having one of those where it must have been something like 2011-ish because the tune that I played after the power came back on was that Joy Orbison tune with the piano in and I'm blanking on the name of it. The We just used to like that tune. I can't remember the fucking name of it. Anyway, that was the tune that I played after it came back on and it really, like the crowd reacted in such a great way. It really made the set and that can happen. That can happen. So sometimes technical nightmares can play to your advantage. Okay, best three things to have on your rider. Well, I have socks on my rider and that is commonly seen as a piss take, but actually a fresh pair of socks when you've been on the road for a few days or even a few weeks, a fresh, new, straight from the shop pair of socks is arguably as good as a shower. And um, and promoters often don't bother getting them. I should hasten to add, the promoters very often see that as an optional extra, but you know a good promoter when they read the rider and they identify the socks as being an important bit of that rider and make the effort to go out and get them. So yeah, that's not a piss take item. It is a not hard to fulfill, important piece of requested equipment on a DJ's rider. So if you're a promoter and you see that, then really do make the effort because the DJ will be extremely grateful if you if you do that. What else? I mean, so I do know of DJs that do kind of test items, which is to say putting something on, which is a test to see if the promoter bothers to read it. And, you know, a lot of the time the socks are seen as that kind of item. But stuff like... Uh, you know, M&Ms with all the yellow ones taken out. I know at least one DJ who has some variation of that on their rider. Not expecting it to happen, just expecting to have a conversation about it at least. You know, because if, if it's red, then it will definitely be remarked upon, right? So that's kind of a test that is commonly used. I wouldn't, again, use it myself, I have to say. What else? I mean, I tried to have Valium on my rider, <laughs> It just wasn't ever got. It's too difficult to get hold of. I don't see why. I mean, you can definitely put illegal drugs on your rider and every single promoter will provide those illegal drugs. But, you know, a high-quality prescription drug, that's another story. And that was very frustrating to me, I have to say. Because, I mean, for a long time, Valium was just about the most important thing <laughs> to get through a touring schedule. And uh, I should hasten to add, though, that it's, it's not a long-term solution and it's extremely addictive, that stuff. So anyway, that would, be, that would be good to have on your rider, though, 
Absolutely. I mean, the right, I guess, mix of um, of, of of stimulants, I guess. And you've got to come to your own conclusion about what that mix is, you know, because you don't want too much. You know, it's a bad thing to have too much. And you realize that pretty pretty quickly when you're on the road. But having too little or having the wrong stuff is also bad. You need the stuff which is going to get you through the show and no more, <laughs> basically. Or at least that was my conclusion. Anyway, that's two things. Um, actually, that's three things, including the Valium. I would definitely say Valium. Someone should engineer, genetically engineer a non-addictive, a non-neurotoxic <laughs> version of Valium. Okay, Empathy Lacuna again. I've heard many times before that once DJing is your job, it's a lot of show up, play and leave for the next show. With that in mind, what was the last opening act that you purposefully arrived early to check out or subsequent DJ that you stayed after your set to enjoy? Any other memorable instances of either? So, okay, I mentioned earlier that my routine or the routine that I settled upon, the most productive routine that I settled upon was to be basically sober when I started my set. That was important. But the other thing that was important was that I shouldn't be in the club for too long before I played. And for some reason, I mean, that was was a process of elimination that I, I reached that conclusion. And it was just from basically evaluating my performances in different scenarios. And if I was in the club for more than half an hour, before I played, then I just wasn't as good. So the first the first half an hour anyway, the first hour maybe of the show just wasn't as good. I needed to be detached to some extent from what was going on in the party. I needed to know what was going on in the party. So you can't just rock up two minutes before and then stick a tune on. You need to be aware of what's going on and have a feel for it. But I found that more than half an hour, the level of detachment was, wasn't there. And that really affected me. So for, for that reason, that I very rarely watched much of a DJ before me. Now, that was obviously, it was obviously different before. In, in earlier in my career, I would very often like turn up at the very, you know, when doors open. But, you know, you figure out quite quickly, that's just a bad idea. You know, you don't want to be sitting around in a club for two or three hours or, or more waiting to play because you're just not going to be, your ears are going to be fucked for a start you're definitely going to have too many drinks. And it's just not, you know, the way to behave, you know, particularly if people are coming to see you in particular, because that's that's a big difference. Like if you're, if you're a quote-unquote headliner, if people are paying money to see you, then you have to, it's a respect I think you show to the crowd by taking it seriously and making sure that your performance is as good as it can be. And in terms of like staying afterwards, when you're playing at a big party when there's a big stacked lineup and there's lots of stuff happening after you then yeah obviously you stay quite a lot the average show that you generally play as a touring DJ isn't like that you'll be the main act and either you're playing till close or what happens after you finish is that someone will one of the residents or you know someone will come on to do the last hour or two and annoyingly this is almost always the case and it's always annoying to see it happen, but it almost always happens. Like the club clears out pretty quick when you finish playing. So that's a bit of a depressing thing to witness. But, you know, it's just reality. 
And after you've seen it play out half a dozen times or a couple of dozen times, then you realize it's just the way of the world. But I mean, yeah, it really depends on the party, doesn't it, really? There's been lots of times where, like I say, if you're playing a big party, you're playing someone like Bergheim or whatever, and there's like 12 hours of, of music to go, then absolutely, I've stayed for that 12 hours, <laughs> you know? But it's different when, it's much easier to stay behind afterwards than it is to turn up earlier, I would say. Certainly for me, anyway, for the reasons that I've just given, anyway. A follow-up question, when was the last party you went to purely as an attendee with no role as either promoter or performer? Okay, so I went to see Function and Tiga at an outdoor event in Mallorca, where I live, over the summer, and it was fucking great. I stood for about half a Tiga set and then watched Function in his entirety in a field, kind of a, actually it wasn't a field, it was like an outdoor space in the mountains in Mallorca, which is just an unbelievable setting for that kind of thing. And they ran it till six in the morning. It was great. It was in like a village, actually. So I don't know how the sound restrictions work for that, but it was loud until six in the morning. And I had a fucking great time, I have to say. No drugs, a couple of beers, and really, really enjoyed it, actually. I don't know. I don't go out a lot. You'll be unsurprised to discover. I mean, particularly living where I live, there's just not a huge amount going on. I mean, when I'm in London, I I guess I occasionally go to you know, Fabric or someone like that. Um, I don't know. I guess that's the trap you fall into when you play out a lot. It's just you're in that environment enough that you feel like you get your hit. And then when you do have nights off on Fridays and Saturdays, then you just want to do something else. You know, particularly I've been doing it for a long time. You just want to spend your time on alternative pursuits, basically. So for the most part, anyway. So you just end up in that situation where you just don't see much. But, you know, I had a great time, I have to say, at that rave this summer in Mallorca. It was a proper rave, you know. None of this fucking tourist bullshit. It was, yeah, it was locals only, basically. Or pretty much, anyway. Yeah, really fun. And Function is one of my favorite DJs ever, really. So awesome. Really, really good. Most surprising crowd slash venue. Okay, I had to look this one up because it came to mind immediately, but I couldn't remember the details of it. So it was Room Club in Italy. So it was in this little village north of Venice called, and I'm trying to figure out what the name of the Venice is, is Gaiarine, I think is how you pronounce it. Gaiarine, G-A-I-A-R-I-N-E, in Veneto, in Italy, northern Italy. And it's completely in the middle of nowhere, like nothing there at all. Certainly nothing that you would expect to, uh, you know, have a techno party going on anyway. And, you know, Italy used to have this amazing local club scene like uh, regional club scene. And there are still lots of regional, regional clubs in Italy, but it's um, so many of them shut. And I've just checked and the room club has shut, didn't, didn't open again after the pandemic. It's a real shame. I mean, Italy is, well, it's suffered from, you know, years of economic stagnation and young people leaving, basically. So a real shame. But this is back in 2017, this gig, 14th of October 2017 and 
I just remember walking in and it was just bedlam in there. <laughs> it was like there was little this little village. It's a pretty small club, but not not that small. I don't know, maybe I don't know, four hundred people, three, four hundred people or something like that. I'm guessing. So it was it was something along those lines. But I just walk in there, it was just going off, absolutely going off. And it just went off until six in the morning. And those are the kind of gigs which are just great, you know, when you're not really sure what it's going to be like. It's in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, you just walk in and you're, you're dreading the worst case scenario, you know, because the worst case scenario is when you can hear the music outside the club and you can hear a little re- bit of reverb, like that's, that's one thing that you, you learn pretty quick as a DJ, what an empty club sounds like from the outside. And when you hear that sound when you're walking and you're like, oh, fuck, no. So you're dreading that. And when you get there and you can't hear it, you can hear a little bit of a muffled thing and you walk in and it's good and you're like, fuck yeah, yes, here we fucking go. So... That was a great example of that room club in Italy, in Veneto. So I'm not in touch with the guys. And obviously, like I said, it's, it's sharp. But if any of you guys are listening, then mega thumbs up. That was an awesome party. Really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, that was a good example of that shit happening. Right. Memorable impromptu after party sets. This is as the mix herbs again. So I was never too much of an after party guy. Certainly not in terms of playing after party sets I went to my fair share of after parties for sure but in terms of actually playing them not so much I don't know why that is I think it's basically because I saw my main set as a kind of excellent performance almost and I found it once I once I was done with that I didn't really want to play again you know I would much more happy just to chill and watch someone else playing I mean, I can tell you the best after party set that I ever witnessed. And that was Sven, Sven Vath, Sven Feith, however you pronounce it in the correct way. Let's call him Sven Vath for the sake of argument. It was a cocoon after party. I don't think I've told this story before on the show. It was, um, it must have been 2016 or thereabouts, 2017 or something. And it was the first after party that I'd ever been to of theirs. <clears throat> Ibiza after party, that is in a villa and he played a set which was well put it this way uh he's one of the most charismatic people i think i've ever met and his charisma absolutely carried this after party all day it really did like he started playing at about 10 a.m and it went all day and it was just incredible atmosphere all day it really was it was it was absolutely awesome and uh a good time was had by all there were details to that story which i could i could expand upon but maybe i'll leave that for another day but yeah sven in ibiza villa after party that is something which uh that's a memory which i would definitely treasure (laughs) in terms of memorable dj sets absolutely okay um how concerned are you by how busy the club is and does it affect your set well Absolutely, it does affect your set, and particularly the the, um, the the changes in busyness. Right, I did a. I think my first my first solo pod, I forget what episode it was, episode fifteen or something, was a description, an extended description of clearing a dance floor, 
And that is a horrible feeling. It really is a really horrible feeling, particularly when you think you're playing quite well. When you think you're playing well, I mean, when you're having a bad set, you're having a bad set, right? And it's just not working and whatever. But when you think like what you're doing is what you should be doing and it should be okay and you just, you know, every time you look up, there's a few less people. That is one of the most horrible feelings in the world. It really is. It's just, you know, death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. But I mean, having said that, a dwindling dance floor is bad. But if you, I mean, a half-empty club isn't necessarily bad at all. So the vibe in a half-empty club can be can be fine. It can be good. You can have a great party with a half-empty dance floor, 100%. And you can take people, you know, you can get, get it going and have a great party when it's been half-empty and flat when you go on. That's absolutely possible and should be your aim. If you, if you, you know, if you're playing, and particularly if it's your show and it's half empty, it's incumbent upon you to give the people who have turned up the best possible experience. That's, I've always, I've always thought that. So you can't be a grumpy twat about it. You've got to get on there and do your thing to the best of your ability. Now, I've never been a particularly demonstrative person on the decks. So for me, it's um, it's a case of just of, of getting the vibe going with the music, and you know, I think like the the first time you acknowledge the crowd during a set. When I say acknowledge, I mean like you know, really kind of like you know, give a little clap or whatever, try and give people some encouragement. When the club is half empty and everyone knows it's half empty, like if you get a really great reaction to that little moment in a DJ set in a half, half empty club it can really I guess it's the kind of siege mentality that you're trying to create you're trying to kind of you know everyone realizes this is a little bit of a shit party but if we can all pitch in together and make it great make it awesome then the people that didn't bother to turn up well they'll have missed out right so that's the kind of attitude that you're trying to create in that sort of event that sort of party and when when it works it's great. It's fucking awesome when it great when it when it works like that. And those are some of the most memorable. Yeah, those are, those are some of the most fun gigs actually. When it when it looks like it's going to be rubbish, you know, it looks like it's going to be flat. People really get behind you in concert with each other. Really have a fun time. Those are some of the best experiences as a DJ for sure. Those are those are a lot of fun. Those sorts of things. And you know, conversely. If it's super rammed and just too rammed, that can be that can be difficult, you know? Trying to manage that can be tough. You play in venues sometimes and it's too full and people can't dance. People are just trying to survive in the venue, which is which is not great at all, you know? So yeah. Okay. That's about it. No, we've got one more. Certainly got one more of the regular feed edition of this podcast i mentioned at the top there will be a slightly extended version for supporters of the podcast but this is going to be the cutoff so isaac rubin our own isaac rubin asks what shows did you turn down or miss that you wish you hadn't well there's one that springs to mind immediately and that's the set i was supposed to play at Berghain in march or was it february it would have been march 2020 which is obviously not possible for obvious reasons and I haven't played there since but yeah I was gutted to miss that and um, I remain gutted to have missed it Berghain's the club I played the most in in my life you know I've played there I don't know 65 70 times or something over the years and uh, yeah anyway um, <laughs> that's not a sob story about wanting to play Berghain actually we had some really fun 
gigs elsewhere in Berlin in the intervening period. And I'm playing actually, really looking forward to playing Watergate at the end of January, by the way. It hasn't gone up yet, but that's what we're going to be doing next time in Berlin. What else? What else springs to mind? Well, there was a whole summer of shows that I missed in 2014 because I got sick. I've covered that on the podcast before. I got glandular fever, a really, really nasty case of glandular fever, which put me in bed, literally in bed for 10 weeks, in hospital every three days of those 10 weeks to have blood tests, liver functioning at 10% or something. That wasn't because of drinking, it's because of glandular fever fucks your liver. And a whole summer of shows, so a whole bunch of Ibiza shows, a whole bunch of festivals. Yeah, just a nightmare of... Um, of not playing gigs, you know, and forget about the money. And it did cost me a lot of money. I mean, don't worry about that. But regardless of that, it was just what I regret about it now is just not having those, those memories, you know, from what was, should have been a really, really great summer of shows in 2014. So absolutely gutted about that. And I think I've given a good, a reasonably full explanation of my kind of touring history over the course of the last, oh, it's been about an hour or something now, maybe a bit under an hour. Because, you know, I think a lot of shit is talked about the touring lifestyle and I've talked a lot of shit about it in the past. And it is difficult, don't get me wrong. It is extremely difficult and you have to find a way of dealing with it. But really, it's a huge privilege to be able to do it. And, you know, it's incumbent upon you to, you know, make the most of it. I think if you've got the opportunity, if you've been given the opportunity to play a lot of gigs, whether it's as a DJ or a band or whatever, you know, people want to come and see you play. People want to pay and come and see you play. Then absolutely take that opportunity with both hands. You know, there are things that go along with it that you have to be careful of. You have to be mindful of, and you, you know, you can't just do it all most of us can't anyway you've got to like i said you've got to find a way of, of doing it that is sustainable but you know it's a huge it is a huge privilege and you should count yourself lucky if you're in that position really because i think maybe i didn't always appreciate it as much as i should have done you know but you know whatever okay as mentioned that was the last question if you want to hear the rest of this podcast then you can join us on patreon patreon.com official there are two tiers there. As I mentioned, the cheaper one is £3.50 or four US dollars. And the more expensive one is entitled Musicality and is 10 US dollars a month or £8.50. And it gets you, in addition to all the stuff you get on the regular tier, which is the bonus podcast and all that kind of stuff, it also gets you all the music that we release on Hot Flush Recordings. So it's like a Bandcamp subscription, basically, in addition to supporting the best podcast or the best music podcast out there, right? Or maybe the best electronic music podcast. <laughs> is, is that fair? Okay. Wow. I think this has been, this has been kind of fun, hasn't it? I enjoyed the, uh, the singles club episodes. It was, um, yeah, definitely fun doing that. I hope you've had a good time listening to this. I hope it's, um, been a productive use of your boxing day or whenever you're listening to it. Maybe you've used it to escape the family. I don't know. That's kind of the kind of thing I'm usually looking to do on Boxing Day. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the holiday. I hope you enjoyed the rest of the holiday period. I'm playing at Studio 338 in London on New Year's Eve with Seb Zito and Denson Pika and a bunch of other people. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I think I'm playing 
four till six, but it goes on till 10 a.m. or something. It's going to be a proper rave. So, um, yeah, if you fancy a dance, then I'll see you down there, I guess. If not, then I will see you back here. Oh, actually, hang on a sec. Let me just, uh, let me just note that this was the hundredth episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Wow, that's a, that's a milestone. So thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for supporting it in whatever way you're supporting it. Just by listening, that's a way of supporting it, you know. Happy Christmas, happy holidays. I will see you in 2024 for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.